But what we've been looking at, uh, we, we saw how Jesus is Lord. We saw how he is, or we're seeing how he is Savior, because those are the three titles, remember, I'm not just picking those out. Those are the three titles that Peter gives him at the end of Second Peter, uh, that he is our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Uh, and so now we're looking at, well, what does it mean that Jesus is Savior? And we've seen how the Bible says that Jesus saves us from blank. And there are a couple ways, a couple things that it fills in the blank with. Jesus saves us from, does he remember what the first one was? He saves us from, this is all, it doesn't matter. My kids better get this because it doesn't matter. When we talk about the sermon on Saturday nights and the last few weeks when we say, what does Jesus save us from? This is always the one that they say. When I'm like, what are we talking about? And like, Jesus saves us from what? They always say this one. So, Rebecca, what's the first one? Sin, that's right. Uh, and that's one we often go to. We know Jesus saves us from our sin. The Bible tells us that that's what he came to do. The name Jesus, we're told that that's why he's called Jesus. Remember, the angel says you'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But not only does he save us from our sins, he saves us from our what? What was the next thing? Huh? No. Next thing. Close. Close. From our, think, think Luke, think Zechariah, what uh, Zechariah's prayer, save us from, Yes. From the hands of our enemies and from all who hate us. That's right. So the second one was our enemies. Uh, and we saw that Jesus, in fact, has defeated our enemies, uh, is reigning, and will one day utterly defeat them. So that's the second thing we saw, that the Bible says he saves us from blank. He saves us from our enemies. This is Again, we're just pulling these things from Scripture. The last one that we're looking at is he saves us from the wrath of God. That Jesus saves us from God's wrath. That you and I... Because of our sin, we were separated from God. Uh, that the relationship between us and God without Jesus is not a good one. That we are enemies. That there is, uh, it is a relationship, remember, it is a relationship of wrath, of anger, of flared nostrils. Remember, that's the, the Hebrew word for wrath uh, in, the, in the Old Testament is, is flared. Like, it's really just the word for nose, but the picture is just like a really, oh, like a flared nose. And that's true both ways. Right? We, we are not cool with the Lord from our side, and the Lord has wrath and righteous wrath toward us because of our sin. So we need that relationship to be changed. Well, how is that relationship going to be changed? We certainly, we both would not and could not do it ourselves. And so God is the one who sends his son to save us from that Wrath. God is the one who, who ha, there's this just and righteous judgment of God that we deserve, that we have earned. But Jesus comes to save us from that wrath. So uh, we saw last week that not only is Jesus able to save us from the wrath of God, how does he save us from the wrath of God? He does it by shedding his blood. And that's what we started to look at last week. So we know Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. How does he do it? He sheds his blood for us. And we walked through scripture and we saw just, you know, answer the question, well, why does Jesus have to shed his blood? Why does Jesus have to go to the cross? Why, as Jesus is, is, is showing this to his disciples, why does he say, look, this is what scripture has been pointing to all along. This is nothing new. This is what has always been planned, this going to the cross. This is actually my exaltation. Why is that? Why do we have to have the cross? Why can't Jesus just come and be a great example and us just sort of follow his example? Why does he have to die? 
And so we looked at that last week. We saw the question of salvation and, and the justice of God. That God is merciful, but he is also just. We saw that, that the blood of Jesus is the answer, is the just answer to God's wrath because blood appeases wrath. If, if we're going to be saved from our sin, then our debt has to be paid. Blood must be shed. So we went back, you go back to Genesis, Exodus, all, all the way through the, through the law, blood and wrath and life are all tied together throughout scripture. This is not some new idea that popped up at the end of the book of Matthew. Blood brings wrath and the loss of life, but blood also appeases wrath and redeems life. That's been the story since the garden. And so for us, if we're going to be saved from wrath, blood has to be shed for our sins. The the reality is, it is either going to be your blood that will be shed for your sins, as, as you and I deserve, or it's going to be the blood of Christ shed to pay our sins for us, the grace of God. As, as is the case since the beginning, we learned that in Jesus, there is life in the blood. And so that's what we've been, been looking at. That's what this is, is answering. Why does Jesus have to die? Because there is life in the blood. Uh, and so here's the question we're going to look at today, sort of building on that. If there's life in the blood, why Jesus specifically? Why just Jesus? Why does Jesus have to die? Why is it just Jesus and Jesus alone that can do this? I mean, if blood has to be shed, well, what's wrong with the goats and bulls thing that was going on in the Old Testament? Why why didn't that that do it? Or, or, Or why can't someone else other than Jesus do it? Why can't Brian do it? Right? I think we've all got reasons we know that Brian can't do it. Uh, But why can't someone else, right? Why can't Zach and I combine our amazing pastoral powers, right, uh, and do it? What is it about Christ? Why does it have to be Jesus? Why Jesus alone? Why not him? Why not multiple someone else's? What, what makes Jesus so glorious isn't just that he saves us from the wrath of God. What's going to make Jesus so glorious is because he is the only one that can do that. He is our only hope for salvation. He's the only one whose blood will save us from our blood being shed. And this is important because people will go around and want to say things like, hey, you know, let's, let's quit being so judgmental uh, of other religions. You know, you keep saying that Jesus is the only way and that kind of makes people in other religions feel bad. Uh, well, here's the truth. If Jesus is indeed, as the Bible says, the only way to salvation, then the most unloving thing we can do is just let those people keep trusting in a religion that will do nothing to actually save them. If it requires blood, if someone has to die and it's either going to be them or it will be Jesus and by them placing their faith and trust in Christ, his blood will be applied to their life rather than theirs. It would be the most unloving thing to do to know that only Jesus can appease the wrath of God and let people be happily living in a lie, walking toward wrath and destruction. Like we know. We know the hope that comes both in the life to come and in this life. 
By having the wrath of God, that backpack of the wrath of God, as Pilgrim's Progress sort of laid out, that guilt, that recognition that, that we have done wrong and what we deserve to have that burden lifted and thrown at the foot of the cross, we know the joy of that. And so we must, we must be telling people, look, your only hope is Christ, but we must know why their only hope is Christ. We must know why we can say, look, if you don't have faith in Jesus, then you're in real trouble. You're not just going to go to hell because you're a Muslim. You're not just going to go to hell because you're a Buddhist. You're going to go to hell because you're just like me, which is a fallen human being. And the only hope of being saved from that wrath is to have the blood of Christ pay for your sins so why is jesus the only option why is jesus the only answer if blood appeases wrath if 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 jesus blood is the just payment for sin uh what do we learn uh from the scriptures first when it comes to blood being shed to avoid wrath the bible teaches us that it's not just any blood so if you got the handouts at the back i filled out the answers that we already did because i'm nice like that uh, and then the, the answer to the next, the first blank on there is uh, blood has to be shed, but not just any blood, right? This isn't just, you know, bring blood and, and that'll sort of, sort of pay for it. Go back to the story where we, where we looked at of, of God's wrath and blood being tied together. The story of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. We'll really focus on verse 5, uh, which is where it's going to point it out. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for, that, for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, uh, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the first thing we see is that, okay, so blood is going to, remember Exodus 12, the Passover, you've got to have blood on your doorpost. But notice he doesn't just say, just put any blood on the doorpost. Right? He didn't say just, okay, guys, you've got to go and you've got to get some blood. You can get it from a bull. You can get it from frogs. There's plenty of frogs still left over from one of the plagues, maybe. Uh, you can go get some of that frog blood and put it on there. Like, that's what they would do if it was in Louisiana, right? Uh, so you can do, you know, whatever. Uh, he doesn't say that. He says very specific. The sacrifice was specific. It's not just that something has to die, but rather that the sacrifice to avoid the wrath of God, it must be a lamb. Get, now, it can be a lamb of the, the sheep or the goats, but it has to be a lamb. A lamb without blemish and a male and a year old, right? It gets, in fact, more specific. Not just even a lamb. Okay, I've got a lamb or we've got lambs or goat lambs. You know, we've got options here. But then it's got to be what? One without blemish. So that weeds them out even more. And then the ones without blemish, it has to be a male. And then of the males without blemish, it has to be one that's a year old. That's the one. 
Any other blood smeared on your doorpost would not work. And I want you to notice that I love that the Israelites understood the wrath of God here in a, in a more real way than we did, than often we do. Because notice, it doesn't say that any of them skirted this obligation, right? They were all so sure of the wrath of God, so sure that a destroyer was really going to come. So trusted the word of God that at this point, even the Israelites, right? The Israelites, those knuckleheaded Israelites, every single one of them apparently got a lamb without blemish, a male, and a year old. Because you don't see any stories of it was like, you know, and Azanoth, he got a female and his whole family, the firstborn of his family perished. Uh, You don't get that. They all listened, but they did the specific sacrifice because they knew they wanted to avoid that wrath of God. And so they said, what do we have to do? This is what you have to do. They said, well, that's what we'll do because we know what we don't want is the wrath of God. So God's wrath we see isn't just uh, avoided by any blood, any blood being, just bring blood, but rather by specific blood, a specific Sacrifice. Well, then again, the question becomes, well, then why do we still need Jesus? Because what if we give that specific sacrifice? If he gives us specific sacrifices of, of goats or whatever, and we give them, then why not just, you know, bring perfect sheep and, and perfect goats, like it says, and, and, and those will take care of the work. Because the Bible also tells us that the blood of sheep and goats can't actually take away our sin. They are not a just payment for our sin. They, they, so let's understand this in, in how the Bible has worked. Those sacrifices never could, never did. They were never supposed to, nor will they ever be the payment for people's sins. It has always been a recognition. Those sacrifices were a recognition that something needs to die, but they were just a recognition. Hey, we deserve death. We know this. We know we deserve the wrath. We know the lamb should be us. We're recognizing this, but we're not saying the lamb is us and we're okay now because the lamb is a person or whatever. It's not doing that. The blood uh, of the spotless lamb in the story of Exodus was enough to make the, the destroyer pass over their house, but that's what it did. Notice, it didn't absolve the sin of the Israelites. It just made the destroyer pass over their house. And the the wrath of that particular day. The blood on the doorpost saved them from that momentary wrath of God. But it did not save them from the eternal wrath of God. It was a picture of the blood that needed to be shed to save them from the wrath of God. But it did not save them. In fact, the Bible tells us this. We're told that even that very specific blood, even the very specific sacrifices that the people of Israel had to make, that those were all just promises. That when you're reading about Solomon offering up, you know, 120,000 bulls when he's dedicating the, the, the temple or, 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 you know, the people, you know, slaying these, uh, these thousands, you know, by the time you get to the, to the New Testament, the nation of Israel, you know, like the, the several hundred thousand sheep uh, being slaughtered for, for Passover or whenever. When you get to that moment, we, we know the Bible has taught us those never actually paid the penalty for sin. This is what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
It's impossible. He's talking about the, the he's, he's talking to Israelites here. Israelites at this point are wanting to go back maybe to the, to the, to the sacrificial system. Want to go back to the temple? Do you got to remember when Hebrews is written and what's about to happen in AD 70? Uh, and remember that when he's like, if you go back to the temple, it's just going to be your destruction. In many ways, a very real destruction. Like they would have very, very genuinely, if they'd gone back, if these Hebrews had gone back to Israel and gone back to Jerusalem in the temple, they would have found themselves surrounded not just by sin, but by Romans. Uh, and so he tells them, look, there's no reason to go back to that because you've got Christ, which is what all of those things are pointing to. The blood, he says, the blood of of bulls and goats could never take away your sin. So the question becomes, if the blood of bulls and goats didn't actually take away their sins, then what can? That's what he tells them in verse 5, the very next verse. So the blood of bulls and goats, so it's not just any, it's not just any blood. You can't offer the blood of bulls and goats and that take away your sin. That's, That's why we don't say, hey, man, if if you, who here is sin today? And raise your hand, like, all right, well, We've got a pen outside, you know, everyone go outside and get your goat uh, or your sheep. I think I would always pick a sheep. There's just something about goats. It just doesn't seem right. Uh, I just think they seem evil, don't they? Like goats seem good. Uh, Maybe that would be if if we were like semi-Catholics, it'd be like the the mortal and the venial sins. Like if you did a mortal sin, you got to get a goat. Uh, But a venial sin, that would be that would be a lamb or a sheep. But we don't have that. Now, why don't we do that? Because those things can't take away our sin. In fact, what has taken away our sin, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, consequently, so after verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So, so sin doesn't just require some, you know, thing to pay for it. Sin requires a body. Somebody has to pay. So when Jesus came, he came with what every other perfect sacrifice, every other sacrifice without blemish, every other one-year-old spotless male sacrifice did not have, and that's a body, a human body. And that body is going to do what the goats and the bulls could not do. So you go down to verse 10 of Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 10. It says, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering. So we've been sanctified. That word sanctified, remember, is one of my least favorite translation choices. We have been made holy. How? We've been made holy through the offering of the body of Christ of Jesus Christ once for all. Blood and sheep of sheep and goats cannot do it. Jesus says, you haven't asked for sacrifices. You've given me a body, verse 10, and that body is what makes us holy. What the sheep and goats could not do, Jesus does through his body. What's, what's crazy is this isn't some new revelation here in, in Hebrew. This isn't, this isn't uh, uh, some 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 new idea that we've got to be saved through a body or that the picture of the body was going to be saved. The very temple, the very temple itself taught us that the system wasn't actually working, that it was a shadow of what it was intended to do. So you see this, not, not only was the, the, the blood of sheep and goats a shadow, the very temple itself was a shadow of what we were wanting, of what we were yearning, of fixing the problem of our sin. The temple, right? Right? God's dwelling with us. But not really. 
Because right, look, at, look at what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, 6 through 10. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. It's the first section of the temple, first section of the tabernacle, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as that first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Now, we talked about on Wednesday night, you know, the last days. This is the present age ends when what? When that temple is destroyed. That first section is going to be destroyed in just a few years after the book of Hebrews is written. It will definitely not be there anymore. It's going to show the end of that first age. It's not going to stand anymore. Uh, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what he's saying is the temple... The temple, with, the temple is teaching us what Isaiah said, which is that your sins have separated you from me. Right? The temple was a picture of, so it's, it's, this, it's this paradox, right? The temple is a paradox. It is a picture of God dwelling with his, with his people, but also a picture of the fact that God is not dwelling with his people. Because why? The temple is a, is a reminder of our separation from God. A constant reminder of our separation from God. So, so he says, look, he said, he, he, back in verse 6, he says, you've got this example. Here the priests are. They offer these sacrifices, right? These sacrifices that, that they're supposed to offer that, that deal with sin, but they still, they can't go into the holy place. Now, they've just offered these sacrifices, But these priests still can't go in. In fact, only the high priest is able to go in. And he can only do it once a year. And even then, he's still got to bring more what? More blood (laughs) to offer for his own sins and the unintentional sins of the people. So as long as the temple was standing, he's saying there's a reminder that things are not fixed between us and God. And that separation is showing, verse 8 says, that separation is showing us that what they were doing, the sacrifices, the rituals, were not really making us holy. If they were, then everyone would just go in. If they were, then there'd be no need for a curtain, which is, again, one of the reasons that the curtain is torn in two. And that the temple is destroyed. Because Jesus comes and he does away with that separation. This is the, the great irony is that now we, go, we, go, we, we are beyond what the first century Jews would have hoped for. Do we get to go into the temple? No. And they would be like, oh, you still don't get to go in? And then, and then Paul gets to come and say, no, we are the temple now. And they're like, that's just ridiculous. Wildly beyond any hope. But that's what Jesus does in that. He so fixes the separation between us and God that now not only can we go into the temple, if the temple were there, now we become the temple. We have so been made holy by the blood of Christ 
that the blood of those sacrifices, it couldn't make us holy enough to enter the presence of God. That the sacrifice of Christ makes us holy enough to be the temple of God. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us in verse 11 and 12, just right after this, he says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of bulls or of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So, Jesus doesn't have to go back and forth every year. He's not having to offer every day for our sacrifice and especially not for his sacrifices. Jesus is able through his body, through that more perfect tent, he's able to enter uh, into the holy places. By his blood, not only is he able to enter, but we're able to enter with him. And so the temple itself was proclaiming the need. The, temp- the very temple itself was proclaiming the need, not for more bulls and goats to get us to God, but the need for a greater tent. One that wasn't just a tent, but a body. If man is going to get back to God, if there's going to be a way, we don't need a sheep. We need a body. We don't need a temple. We need a body. If our sin is going to be paid for, it's not going to come through a piece of mutton or a piece of cloth, but through a piece of flesh. A body broken for us. I mean, this, why, do, why do you think Jesus says right before his death, when he tells him at the Lord's Supper, what does he say that he is? In Matthew 26, 26, what does he say? This is my body which is for you. This is my blood. Why those two things in showing them the promise of their redemption? Why body? Why blood? Why does he choose those examples? Does he just happen upon those? No, he chooses them because Jesus understands that for man's sin, a man's blood and a man's body must be shed. So Jesus comes and he offers the body and he offers the blood. The goats and the bulls and the temple never could. So it's not just any blood. The Bible says it's not just any blood. You have to have a person. You have to have a body. There has to be people paying for people's sin. But the Bible also tells us that it's not just anyone's body. So it's not, or it's not just any one's blood. It's not just any blood, and it's not just any one's blood. So it's got to be a person, but it can't just be any person. Because then you would say, well, why couldn't someone else just die? If it's got to be a person, well, then let's find a person. Let's even find a really good person. And maybe they can't undo everybody's sins, but maybe they can undo enough of them. Maybe if we get enough people who are willing to sacrifice themselves, maybe they're good enough. And maybe if we get a million semi-good people, maybe that'll be enough. Why can it not just be any blood? And why can it not just be anyone's blood? Why does it have to be the blood of Jesus alone? Well, if you remember back to Exodus 12, 
God doesn't say to just bring any old bull or any old goat. The goat, the bull, the sheep, the whatever, they all had to be what? Spotless. Without blemish. Exodus 12, 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old. And so, so when we get to, so when you get to, when you get to Romans, you get to Ephesians, you get to Colossians, it's not just that anyone can die for our sin. We don't just need someone's blood. And this is again where the pagan religions get it wrong. And they've even got, you can even see a notion of this in paganism, right? A recognition of that pre-Testament law that was written on the human heart. Because even pagans, this is a trope in movies, you don't just, you don't just kill someone. What do you, who, who do you have to kill? What is the ultimate sacrifice that wicked pagans make to their gods? You kill a what? A virgin, Right? Bring us a virgin. Like that's the epitome of paganism. They recognize there has to be someone more pure than just any old Joe. So even paganism recognizes that it can't just be someone, that there are certain things, there is a purity involved in the sacrifice. And so we understand we need the blood of a spotless lamb if we're going to avoid the destroyer. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is that spotless lamb. So, for example, we saw this in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood is without blemish, without spot. He is the perfect sacrifice for sin. Now, how is he the perfect sacrifice? What does it mean that Jesus was without blemish and without spot? Does it just mean he was really good looking? Which is what it was like when you had, when it said, find me a spotless lamb, it didn't mean find you one that didn't have a past. You know, it meant find you one that that looked good, that, that didn't have like a broken limb or whatever. But when it comes to Jesus, how does it mean that he is spotless and without blemish? It means that Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I did not live. Jesus lived a life of absolute perfection, that Jesus committed no sin in action or intention. He didn't ever do a sin, nor did he ever not get to do a sin, even though he wanted to. For example, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, just a few verses past this in, in 1 Peter. He says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The the, the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to to other priests and and why his sacrifice is better in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. It says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated, not from whom? Separated not from God like we are. Separated from whom? From sinners. Different than us. And exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests. Remember the high priest has to go in and offer blood for his own sacrifice and also for the unintentional sins of the people? He doesn't have to do that. He he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus, unlike these other priests, Jesus is a perfect priest. He is 
And what makes him the perfect priest? Not that he's winsome, not that he can hold a crowd. What makes him the perfect priest? He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners. He is exalted. The other priests, the other priests, think about it. They had to find, why did the other priests have to find spotless sacrifices? Because the priests themselves were not spotless. That's why the priests couldn't offer up themselves. So think about the brokenness of the whole system and how it was pointing to the need for a savior. You have spotted priests offering sacrifices. You have leprous priests offering sacrifices. Hoping and begging for a spotless lamb to come. Jesus isn't just the spotless lamb. Jesus is the only spotless person. That's why Jesus can make the payment for your and my sins and not just for the sins of sheep and not just for the sins of goats. But for us, a body was made, a person, a perfect priest who's able to offer a sacrifice not just for himself because he does not have any sin to pay for, but is able to bring a sacrifice that pays for our sin for the first time. And he does it, how does it say? When he offered up himself. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So Jesus, the high priest, who faced what we face, who faced what the other high priest faced, who faced what the other priest faced, yet he did it, what? With perfect obedience so that now we can have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. Let me tell you, there was no, even the high priest couldn't enter the Holy of Holies with confidence. Right, even you know, you're the, the the putting bells, putting bells on their clothes. So if the bells quit jingling, you went, oh, must have died. Drag him out, you know that sort of thing. Like that would, you'd be like, yeah, I get to go into the holy of holies, and you're like, whoa, like I'm about to go into there. You can imagine the introspection, and you can imagine looking at those sheep and saying, I don't know, how that's gonna cut it, because I know me. And I know, I know God, I know what I'm about to go into. But now the blood of Christ is so superior, so superior. His sacrifice done by a superior priest, offering a superior sacrifice through his blood and his body that now you and I can go to God with confidence. When we pray, none of us prays and says, dear heavenly father, if you do not kill me, I'd like to continue the sentence. Right? None of us thinks, well, I'm about to talk to God, and one of my worries is that he might look at me and realize how sinful I am and strike me dead. Even though we would deserve that, we would, many of us would deserve that because of the sins that we have committed today on our way to worship. And yet God doesn't. How can we approach his throne with confidence? Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. Because of what his blood did. We can now boldly approach that throne. And what is so perfect about the sacrifice of Christ? Well, Hebrews 9 tells us. His blood does what those other sacrifices couldn't do. So 9, 13, and 14, again, 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If those other sacrifices, if all those other sacrifices could do was get our outsides clean, how much more can the blood of Christ, without blemish, purify our insides, our consciences? And this is why all the good that we do without Christ, they're all nothing. Because any good without Christ, he says, springs from dead hearts. They spring from consciences that haven't been cleaned. So people go, well, what about a person who doesn't believe in Christ but does a lot of good things? And I go, that person doesn't exist. If that person existed, if you had a, so people ask, you know, that, like the question, what about a person, a good person on an island who never hears about Jesus? Will they go to heaven? And I say, yes. The problem is that person doesn't exist. There's no, there's no good person doing a bunch of good things, but not knowing about Jesus. The Bible tells us that we can do all sorts of things that make our outsides look better, but it is only the blood of Christ that can change our insides, can change our hearts, can change the reason that we're doing the things. Only Christ can purify us so that we do the right things for the right reasons. So that now, as he says uh, in verse 14, so that now rather than serving ourselves, even in the good that we do. So that now rather than serving ourselves, we serve the living God. His blood is, is so perfect that he's able to cleanse not just our outsides, but our insides. He's able to, uh, the picture goes, right? He's able to take our dead hearts and make them alive. Only the blood of Jesus can do it. You cannot do enough good works to take your dead heart and make it alive, which makes sense because your dead heart will not want to do what? Good works even to begin with. Even the good things that you do, you will do them for selfish reasons. You'll do them for selfish gain. You will not do them for the glory of the Lord, which is the very reason for which we've been made. And so if you, do, if you do good things for wrong reasons, they are still wrong things. But Jesus can purify not just our outsides, but our conscience, the reason we do what we do. Jesus' sinlessness is able to take away our sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So these former priests, they had to sacrifice, not just for the people, but for themselves. And in fact, on the Day of Atonement, the first, when you go to the Day of Atonement, you read about it in the book of Leviticus. Do you know the first sacrifice they had to offer? The one that's detailed and the biggest sacrifice? You know who it was for? The priests. They get themselves ready. The biggest sacrifice, in other words, the biggest, most, you man, you got to be washed, was of the priests. Their sacrifices couldn't atone for themselves. They couldn't clean themselves. Jesus takes away our sin. He saves us from the wrath of God because he is able to sacrifice himself for us. And how can he do that? Because he is spotless. There's a reason that when you became a priest, it didn't say, all right, you're a priest. You're going to go and what we're going to offer up is you. The priest, the priest, if they were honest, would have said, okay, let me tell you, this is going to be a bad idea. And why? Well, because you don't know about this, but I've done this and this and this. And I've thought this and this and this and this and this and this and this. 
not the best sacrifice, right? I would be this gangly mass of a lamb that you're about to throw into the fire. Not exactly the spotless lamb that the Lord is looking for. So every priest would have been like, you know, it would have been like, all right, it's time for the priests to offer themselves. Who's ready? And they'd been like, uh, I don't think it's going to work. So I'm definitely not going to do it. We have in Christ a priest who is able to offer himself and thus take away our sins because he does not have any of his own sins to pay for. So when the Bible tells us, it tells us we don't just need something to die and we don't just need someone to die. We need a perfect sacrifice given by a perfect person and only Jesus fits that description. Only Jesus is the perfect, spotless, without blemish, human sacrifice for sin. Anything else would fall short in its death. And anyone else has fallen short in its life. Only Jesus' perfect life can enable him to give the perfect death for man's sins. This is why when you get to the New Testament, you get these proclamations of the glory of Christ. When you see John the Baptist shout out in John chapter 1 verse 29, when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here it is. And he's saying this to a bunch of Jews, and they don't go, wait, John, that's already happened. We're already doing that, and that's not till twilight. And that's why Jesus can say, on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he was betrayed, on the evening of the cross, that's why you can say what we read in Matthew, as they were eating and drinking, drinking, Jesus took bread, after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Luke Luke adds that he said, which is for you. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, said, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. My body, my blood, your salvation. So take and eat, take and drink. And that's why it tells us that the redeemed in the book of Revelation, it says that the redeemed sing in Revelation chapter 5. It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Truly, Christ's blood and Christ's blood alone is what takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. If we're supposed to see, just take a moment and let's just go, boldly go to the Lord in prayer, knowing that we can only pray right now without being consumed because of the blood of Christ and we're only heard and not separated because of the blood of Christ. So today, just take a moment to marvel at what the blood of Christ has done for you. Marvel at the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It was not just a story of great pain that someone bore. It is not just a story of, oh, look what he went through. In the cross, in that shedding of blood, in that body broken, see your only hope for salvation. But it's not just a hope anymore. 
In the Old Testament, it was a hope. The lambs, the sheep, the bulls were all hopes. They were all proclamations. We need a perfect sacrifice. We know what we deserve. We know it. When we know we can't give it, what is it going to be? It is in Christ that the promise is fulfilled. So today, let's marvel at the blood of Christ. Let's remember that wrath demands blood. Think about your own life. Someone's blood was going to be shed for your sins. Someone's blood was going to be shed for my sins. It was either going to be mine, me bearing the judgment that I deserved, an eternal judgment for rejecting my creator, for living in rebellion and and wanting to live for myself and and eschewing all that he had done for me, every blessing that I had, the very blessing of life itself, the breath in my lungs, and I I had rejected him, deserved wrath. Your sins, they deserved wrath. Someone's blood is going to be shed for your sins. Justice will be paid. The good news is it doesn't have to be yours. That's how powerful the blood of Christ is. It's amazing the blood is. That Jesus can pay the penalty that you deserve. And then rejoice. Rejoice in God. That that he sent a sacrifice for your sins. If God hadn't sent the son, we would have had no hope. We would have been, like Paul says, without hope and without God. But he sent his son to be the perfect lamb who would make a perfect sacrifice for his people. Jesus has saved us from the wrath of God. May we rejoice in our salvation and may we glory in Jesus, our Savior. May you see the blood of Christ and may it cause you to give glory to Jesus. It is not just a bloody story. It is a story of your salvation. It is truly, as the gospels say, as John says especially, it is his exaltation. It is his glory. It is his glorification because there has never been a body that could be broken. Never has been blood that could be shed to save one person, much less to be, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world who saves, as Revelation says, people from every tribe and language and people and nations. That's what the blood of Christ has done. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Father, we come to you today and we praise you and we come boldly and we recognize with every word that leaves our lips, Father, that we would have no reason to think that you would hear our prayers And no reason to think that you would not smite us if you did, if not for the blood of Christ, who has made us, who has cleansed us, not just on the outside, but on the inside, who has made us holy, who has enabled us to confidently approach your throne, knowing that are we righteous in and of ourselves? No, but are we righteous in Christ? Very much yes. We are now, as you call us throughout scripture, we are your holy ones. The blood of Christ has made us what we could never be on our own. And so, Father, we rejoice in that blood. We lament that the blood had to be spilled, that our sin was that grievous, that rank, 
But we rejoice. We rejoice that his blood and his body have been broken and spilled for us. That we might be your children. That we might have secured an eternal redemption. Not one that has to be offered every week or every day. But a salvation that secures us, that ties us to you for eternity. We thank you for Christ. We recognize now, Father, why we must go to our neighbors and to our friends and to our family and tell them, look, your only hope is Christ because there is hanging over them like some great sword of Damocles, this threat of judgment. And we can either look at that knowing that they will not be able to avoid it any other way or we can go to them and say there's hope, there is life found in Christ. There is a sacrifice There is a payment for your sins and it doesn't have to be you that pays it. There is grace and mercy found in Jesus. May we remember that. May we proclaim it. May we live it. May we glorify you because of it. May we give glory to Christ both now and to the day of eternity because he has saved us from the wrath that we deserved by shedding his blood and breaking his body for us. It is in Christ's name that we pray and proclaim, Jesus is Lord. Amen.